Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Thank you guys. Oh, the best of the best. Let me ask a question. How many people are tea people here? Who's a, who's a tea person? A tea, do you like tea? How about a coffee? We have coffee people here? There is something about a coffee uh, that just starts my day, right? Like, especially when it's cold outside, right? The lovely thing about coffee, I guess in tea too, is that it has a couple different modes, right? Coffee is lovely when coffee is hot and you're in the middle of winter, like the seven months of winter around here, right? It is absolutely wonderful. It brings comfort. It wakes me up. It is lovely. But coffee can also be like iced coffee, right? Like a, like a frozen coffee is also equally wonderful. It's refreshing in the summertime. It is fantastic. Now, lately, I, I, this is just a little bit about me, but um, I, I got the uh, subscription for self-serve beverages at Sheets. I've been milking it for every penny it's worth. Um, and so what often will happen is I'll be like, I don't really need a coffee right now, but I'm going to get one anyway because it's a subscription service. So I'll go buy Sheets and I'll grab a coffee and I'll drive and do an errand and I'll put the coffee in my cup holder in the car. And then I'll kind of forget that it's there. Well, a few days ago, I forgot that it was there. Lots of creamer in the coffee. And the next day, I was doing something, and I was just mindless. I just forgot. And I took a sip of the coffee that had been there a few days. And the creamer had coagulated into the coffee cheese. And my window was down, and I just spit it out of the window. It was like dribbling in my beard. It was the worst, because coffee can be hot, and coffee can be cold, but coffee that's lukewarm is miserable. It's good for nothing. It loses its value, but what's so interesting is the same thing can happen with Christians. The same thing can happen with the church. We become what Jesus said. He said we become lukewarm. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles. There's orange ones underneath you. To page 839, Revelation, the last book in the whole, the last part of the whole book, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. As you're turning there, you can also follow along with our app as you turn there. We've been in a series called Review, and it's this reality that we review all sorts of stuff in our culture, from products to services that helps us navigate things, but that mindset of reviewing things can often uh, impact the way that we understand church and we start to review church and does it fit my needs in a particular kind of way. We said it's helpful to have reviews, but ultimately the most critical question is how would Jesus review his church? How would Jesus, the one who set it up, how would he review you and I? And so what's fascinating in the book of Revelation is that Jesus actually did that with seven different ancient churches all throughout modern-day Turkey. He left a review for each of these churches, and we've been looking at them one by one. Tonight, we're going to finish up the series as we consider the last one. And I get an iced coffee the entire time. This is a sweet deal. Now, what I've noticed as we've studied all of these churches is that they often struggle with the same kinds of things. 
right? They, they, they uniformly kind of struggle with similar kinds of things. And what's amazing is 2,000 years later, they're struggling with the same things that you and I would struggle with here today in our lives as well. So here's what I want to do. I want to read through the passage, then I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to unpack it and see how it would impact us and what it would mean to us here today. Let me read it in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy, I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you might become rich and white garments so that you might clothe yourself. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, an eye salve to anoint your eyes that you might see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, and I, as, I over, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. God, thanks for your word. Uh, God, I pray this evening as we look at what is a challenging word from Christ that our hearts would be soft before you for every distraction that might be in our mind and our heart. God, allow us in this time to be present here with you in this space. Would anything spoken not be done through the persuasive words of human wisdom, but the demonstration of your Spirit's power. We would pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's unpack the passage, okay? So the first thing they say is to the angel in the church of Laodicea. Laodicea. Now, just like we've been doing in this whole series, the context of the given cities is actually really, really important because everything about the context that Jesus is kind of speaking to has so much more meaning when we understand what's happening with these particular cities. So this particular Laodicea, here's a map that we've been working with, a really basic map, and this is modern-day Turkey here. And um, as we read the order of the cities that happen in Revelation chapter 3, the order is Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then lastly, Laodicea. Right? It, walks, it goes right around this postal route, and it ends in Laodicea, the southernmost city on the map. Now, it's actually a very strategic location. Something called the Silk Road went right through there. The pathway from Rome to the east went right through Laodicea. And so it was very important for trade and for commerce. And actually, if you go to the next, uh, the next slide, you'll see that it's a place where if you went there today, you could actually see a lot of the ruins that existed at that time. Uh, and, and there's a lot of archaeological dig sites as well. Now, if uh, go one more, you'll even see another picture here of these columns that still stand to this day 2,000 years later. Now, Laodicea was famous for a few different things. 
It was famous for their banking, they were a banking center. Like wealthy banks were set up in this space. People would come to use the banks. All the banks were solvent. That means that they didn't have more debts than they had assets. They, they were very, very wealthy. They were very, very affluent. Another thing that was true was that they were a fashion center, right? Think of like a New York or a Paris or an LA. It was a fashionable place. People would come to get cloths because they had a special kind of sheep that was raised there. It had black, glossy wool. And so that was very prized. Uh, It was a place that had a lot of affluence. It was very fashionable. The other thing is that they were known for their medical advances. There were people who would write in these books of antiquity, and they would write about a medical center that would deal with people's sight problems, and they had developed this eye salve that was able to heal people from these eye conditions that they had. People would come from far and wide to be able to do that, and so it gave them a lot of notoriety, a lot of affluence. So, and they, because of all of this, because of all of this, they were known as people who were very wealthy and people who were very self-sufficient. Wealthy because of these resources that they had. But because of the resources, they were actually known to be very self-sufficient. And in what, we, what we know about all of these cities is that there was a lot of volcanic and earthquake activity In fact, Philadelphia, the last city we studied, was built right on a fault line. Uh, A a lot was happening volcanically. And so in AD 60, this huge earthquake came along and destroyed a lot of these cities. And what would happen then is what happens now. Like the government comes in and says, well, we'll help you. And so Rome came in and said, hey, on our dime, we'll fix your city. And usually what would happen is Rome would do that, and then as a tribute to that, they would build this temple to worship Caesar or whatever. Now, all of the cities would take Rome up on the word, but not Laodicea. Laodicea said, thanks, but no thanks. We've got the resources we need to take care of it ourselves. And they rebuilt the city on their own dime. Even when Caesar said, I'll come take care of it. No, thank you. We're good on our own. So that's that's the people that Jesus speaks to then when he says this. He says, these are the words of the amen the faithful, the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. We see this theme every time he writes to a different church. He presents a a, a part of who he is, an identifier, and he includes this proclamation about himself. This time he does it a little uniquely. He calls himself the amen, the amen. So the question is, what does he mean when he says, I am the amen? What does that mean? Now, if you're a person who prays, if you're religious, maybe you pray, you might recognize that word as a way that we would punctuate the end of a sentence, kind of like hanging up the phone after you dial. Maybe if you're in an environment like this, you would hear someone shout out amen every once in a while as an affirmation, a way of agreeing with what someone says like in a sermon. Now, that's what what we would call like um, what a friend of mine calls a $10 church word. It's like a lofty word, like the word anointed, and it's used in in church services, but it gets used in such a way that sometimes we might lose the meaning that it actually has over time. Amen is an example of that. Now, amen in the Bible, here's what it meant. It meant truly. It meant assuredly. He meant let it be so. So when we say amen at the end of a, of a, a prayer, for example, We're not just putting a period there. We're saying, what has just been spoken, let that 
be so. Let it be made certain. Now, in the first century, this word amen, it actually was used at the end of a legal document. So if there was a a contract that was being drawn up in a way to say, like, I mean what I say, someone would write on the bottom of that, amen, let it be so. I am guaranteeing the efficacy of this legal document. So when Jesus steps in, he says, I am the amen. He's not just saying, I am the period, or even the exclamation point. He's saying, I am the guaranteed assured, the guaranteed surety of God's promises that it will be acted upon, that it will come to fruition in me. His word is valid and binding. He's saying that I am the one that's going to fulfill all of the promises that God has ever made to his people. So Jesus would say, hey, these promises that God made to Abraham, hey, one day, all of the world is gonna be blessed through you, not just the Jews, but the non-Jews as well. Jesus would say, I'm the fulfillment of that. The promise that came to David when God said, hey, someday a king is gonna come from you and it's gonna be a king that brings about God's heavenly principles here on this earth who's gonna make everything right. The anointed one Isaiah would talk about, uh, that the servant Isaiah would talk about. Jesus would say, I am the fulfillment of that promise to David. And the promise that God would make that someday that sins would be forgiven and that relationship would be made right with God, I am the fulfillment of that. The fulfillment of God's promises that someday the day of the Lord would come where every tear would be wiped from every eye, that sin would no longer get in the way between you and the people that you love, that conflict would be gone, that the world would be created new, that there would be a new heaven and a new earth, all of that. I am the fulfillment of all of it. I am the amen. I am utterly reliable as a foundation. Jesus identifies himself with such a powerful statement, such a powerful statement, the faithful, true witness, the ruler of God's creation. That's the backdrop then that he steps in and he speaks to these Christians. And he says, he says I know your deeds in verse 15, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. And because you're Lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold. What does he say? He says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Notice when Jesus says this, he's not beating around the bush. He's rather serious about it. Can you imagine Laodicea receiving that? It's fascinating that Laodicea is one of two churches that receives zero (laughs) encouragement from their leader. Imagine how that must have felt for them to receive that. Jesus gets right to the problem. You're neither hot nor are you cold. You are lukewarm. And because of that, it's like when you drink coffee that's several days old and it's coagulated coffee cheese. Like you just wanna, wanna, and matter of fact, the word that most of our English translations translate to spit out of your mouth, it's not strong enough. It literally means to vomit it out. So Jesus says, hey, when I, th- when I think about you and how you live out your faith, 
it actually makes me want to vomit. I actually get a little bit of taste of, of vomit in my mouth. Those are strong, strong words. You're neither hot nor cold. Now, m- many times, and, and I grew up in church where this was kind of communicated to me like, hey, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be lukewarm. You should be on fire for Jesus. And you need to pick one way or the other. You need to be, be on fire or just walk away from God altogether. But what we need to recognize is that both hot water and cold water are good things in this passage because they both have value. They both have value. It's, there's a value of hot water. It would have been valuable in Laodicea to have hot water or to have cold water. In fact, Jesus is speaking directly to their circumstances because while Laodicea was a place to go for fashion and for banking, and and, and if this was a happening place to be, the one problem they had was they had a lousy water source. In fact, they didn't have a water source. If you went a few miles away to a town called Hierapolis, it was well known as a place that had hot springs. In fact, today you can go and just everywhere you look, there's these little pools of like mineral rich hot water. It's like little jacuzzi spas everywhere. You can go and use them for free. And they were known as things that that had a healing property to it because of the mineral richness of the water. And then about 10 miles away in a town called Colossae, which is where we get our New Testament book written to the Colossians, uh, they, they were well known to have really fresh, cold spring water. And it would have been refreshing to those people that would seek it out. But Laodicea didn't have any of that. But they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're going to use our resources and our engineering. And so what they did was they built an aqueduct. And there's a picture of that here as well. These pipes that they would, they would take the water across the countryside from these hot or cold locations in order to, to bring water into their city. Now, the problem was this. By the time it went across the miles to get there, and it's an impressive engineering feat for that time. By the time it got there, the water had become lukewarm, and all of the sediments that were in that water kind of leached out, and so these pipes and the, and the whole system became putrid. Historical documents talk about how putrid the water was in this city. So when Jesus talks about being lukewarm, he's using this metaphor that would have been well-known in that culture to them. And he's saying, this is not just about your water source, this is about your spiritual faith walk. And you've become lukewarm. You've become casual in your faith. You're more concerned with being comfortable than with following me and you're playing it safe. And here's what he was trying to tell the church. He was trying to tell the church that a half-hearted faith is good for nothing. A half-hearted faith is good for nothing. You're not bringing healing and comfort like warm water, like hot water. You're not bringing refreshment. You are lukewarm. You're not all in. Half-hearted faith that is comfortable and safe. It's easy, but it's really of no value to me. And so Jesus says, I want to spit it out. I want to spit it out. And then Jesus does them the favor of saying, this is how you got to where you are. In the next verse, verse 17, he says, you say, I am rich and I have acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. 
See, they, they had all their needs met. They had all the resources met as well. They had all the gold that they wanted, and they were so wealthy, and they became independent, and so they said, I have no need for God, and that, meant, that, that led them to this place where they started to depend on their wealth rather than trusting on God's providence in their life, and it led them to this place where they slowly became spiritually numb because their money and their wealth could provide everything for them, and it's really easy to find ourselves in the exact same shoes when we depend on something other than God. And so the question that I want me to wrestle with and you to wrestle with this weekend is this. What do you depend on more than God? What are you depending on more than God? What are you banking on? And, and for these Laodiceans, he, Jesus calls it out. It's your wealth. It's your wealth. It's what you've amassed, your material resources. And, and truthfully, we could probably identify with that as well. So it, it might be this. It might be like the Laodiceans. You know, your business is booming, and as long as it keeps going in that direction, I can take care of all my needs and all my desires. So God, I really don't need you. Maybe it's your education. You know, you're a doctor, you're a teacher, and, and as long as you have that backbone of, the, of your education, that's the thing that's going to lead you into the future. It's your foundation and your security. Maybe it's your savings account, your 401k. You've sacrificed to, to have that nest egg. It's the shock absorber that helps you deal with the blows of life. And things keep, as long as, as, long as the stock market's doing well, as long as that's there, you're set for life. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's a relationship. And as long as you have that, that boyfriend or that girlfriend, that husband, that wife, that child, as long as you have that, You'll be okay. Now, here's the thing. None of those things are bad or wrong. None of them are. It is a good thing to plan for the future. It's a good thing to have healthy relationships. It's a good thing to work hard for your life and the things that you need. But here's the deal. They're not bad goals. They're just terrible gods. In truth, many times we think of sinfulness as going towards bad things. But many times what happens is sinfulness is when we take good things and we make them ultimate things. And we rely on them more than we rely on God. This is what St. Augustine, a monk who lived a long, long time ago, this is what he referred to as disordered loves. Disordered loves. You know, sometimes I've found that it's hard to identify where our loves might be disordered. But one way I've learned to find where those things are true in my heart where maybe I'm relying on something more than God is I follow the conflict and I follow the bitterness because where there is conflict in my life, oftentimes it comes from a place of there's some sort of idol attached to it. What do I mean by that? Well, when your business is going well, you feel on top of the world, but maybe when it's taking a down, downturn and now you have to go through your first or second round of layoffs and now you're a monster. Why? Because your foundation was starting to get eroded at. It was starting to be chipped away and it's like, man, this is my everything. 
What am I going to do if it's not there anymore? And all of a sudden, your spouse is like, well, why do you spend all your time on your, on your business? And I feel like the family takes a back seat to that. So it's this conflict that comes because it's this, this foundation for you that's tied to what the, the Bible talks about being an idol for us when something's greater than God. Jesus would say, hey, I'm your source. I am the amen. the amen. I provide for you. So like when the job market dries up or shifts and now your education isn't worth what it was before, or maybe when someone starts like questioning your rationality. I remember having a guy who, there's this collision with him. He was super brilliant and someone questioned his rationality. And he's like, I am the model of rational thought. Someone had chipped away at his source of identity and he started to pull, they started to pull on this idol in their life. Or when the stock market flips and now your nest egg is worth two-thirds of what it is, of what it was, and now your anxiety starts writing, and when your spouse goes to the grocery store and now they buy the name brand orange juice rather than the Weiss brand orange juice, you're like, why would you, why would you do that to our family? <laughs> There's a conflict. O- orange juice maybe is one of those things you don't cut corners on, I admit. There's certain things in life that are like that. But there wasn't conflict before, and now there is, because it was an idol, and it's attached to your heart. That happens. Many of us can put our, our hope in relationships, and now when your best friend starts ghosting you, when they don't hang out with you, when they find a new group of friends, uh, when the spouse isn't there anymore, when your kids leave the home, Maybe there's nothing even disease, but you find yourself not having the same foundation, and it's like my everything was poured into raising them, and now they're not in the house. Who am I? What good am I? What do I bring to the table? What worth am I? See, it's your foundation, and it got pulled away. What happens is this, is we depend on these things, and the Laodiceans, it was their money. We depend on something other than God, and when we do that, here's what we say. We say, God, I don't need you. This is sufficient for me. God, I don't need you. You know, we, we wouldn't say it that way out loud. Like, we may have never confess that with our mouth, but we live that way. As long as my finances are in order, God, I'll just leave you there because I've got this. Maybe, maybe if there's an emergency, you know, when it really gets bad, then all we can do, all that's left is for us to pray. You ever notice how we say that sometimes? Instead of being the steering wheel, it becomes the spare tire. We turn to God last rather than first. God, as long as I have this education or this relationship or my 401k is on the right track, I can figure this out on my own. That's why Jesus says this. Hey, you say you are rich. I have acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. See, they were so rich that they said, we don't need Caesar's help to rebuild after the earthquake. No, thank you, we can do this on our own. And they would say the same thing to God. God, as long as I have my money, I, you can just stay over there. And you know what? I'll do a little bit of religion. And you know what? My kids are at an age where they need some church, so I'll bring them and we'll sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on my life. But I don't want you getting too much into my life, Jesus. You know, I think a lot of us can fall into that kind of trap. And when we depend on ourselves, here's what it does. It sets us up for spiritual failure. And it sets us up for personal frustrations. When now your spouse isn't there, 
or they didn't treat you the way that you want them to, or the money's eroding, or, or I'm not on top of my game like I used to be in my career. And it tees us up for the enemy, and it tees us up like the Laodiceans to be lukewarm. Think about this for a second. Jesus is telling them, hey, listen, I am the amen. I am the greatest foundation you can build your life on. I am the fulfillment of all of God's promises. I am the ruler of creation. And the Christians there are saying, nah, I don't need you. That's why Jesus said, I will spit you out of my mouth because you don't even see it. You don't understand C.S. Lewis observed this. He said, Jesus Christ produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, or adoration. Either people hated him, or they were terrified of him, or they adored him. But there was no trace of people expressing mild approval. Mild approval. This is the condition that plagued this church. And is it the condition that plagues the church today and our church today? Mild approval. Jesus, I want a little bit of religion in my life. I'm gonna make sure my kids understand the whole Bible thing and I don't want them to turn out like a Muslim or an atheist, so I want them to be Christian. So we're gonna sprinkle a little bit of Jesus. We're gonna be here once every four to eight weeks. But I don't want God really calling the shots. He's not gonna be the amen in my heart. I find it interesting that when life is going really good, we can stand on our own feet and, and we rely on our own strength, but the moment something bad happens, we get this reality check. And it's like these last two years have been one huge reality check, that all of these things our society built its foundation upon are just about worthless. Even when we had a solution for a pandemic, we couldn't get our junk together and to really deal with that. And we say, well, our government will, will not fail us. They'll get it right. And yet we see these people, and I was talking with a friend who served uh, in, in a combat zone in, in Afghanistan, and, and when we pulled the troops back, it, it was this moment where it was like, look, if our intelligence community didn't know about this, and it turned out this way, why didn't we know? How do we not know this? How much money have we poured into this? Why don't we know? And if we did know, and we still did it? Who does that make us? I thought we had the high moral ground. I, I thought we were better than. And it was like this foundation that we built our security on has been eroded from us. And in those times where there's this huge reality check, it's like all of a sudden we didn't realize that our foundation was off. This is why Jesus says this, but you don't realize, you, you say I am rich, but you don't realize that you're wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. And I just pictured that the Laodiceans were like, wait Jesus, hold on. Surely this, you sent this to the wrong church, right? Like this meant to go to someone else because well, I mean, look at us. We're able to take care of ourselves. Look at this building we built. Look, I helped on that aqueduct. I've got a lot of black sheep. <laughs> I don't know. But, but they, they thought, Jesus, surely you got it wrong. It, it must apply to someone else. And here's what's so scary about this whole scenario is that we might not even see it. That we might not even see it. It scares me half to death. I, I never want to get to that place in my life where Jesus would turn to me and say, you're missing it. 
and where I think I'm receiving the favor and the blessing of God in my life, and he would say, you know what? You're actually poor and wretched and blind and naked. And I, I wonder if some of us don't see it because at a distance, here's what our lives look like. We're, we're living the suburban dream. We've got the picket fence. We've got the job, the career. We've got the two and a half kids. Like we're on the up and up. It's all happening. And Jesus would say, you're missing it. Here's the truth. Blessings can blind you. Blessings can blind you from the truth. Because here's what I hear lots of people say. Lots of people will say, you know what? Money can change people. You know, have you already experienced that? Like money just changes people. And I've seen that too. Like, you know, your relationship and your family was great and then all of a sudden Uncle Lenny dies and, and he leaves half of it, you know, like a, a quarter of the money to you and then your sibling gets three quarters of the money and now what used to be healthy is like this. Right, or that friend that you were best friends with in high school or college, you know, like now they're, they're wealthy and they're vacationing well and you're, you're just struggling to get by and so now there's conflict in the middle of all of this. That's why sometimes wealthy people can have a hard time finding relationships because money can often make people weird. So we'll confess that money can make people weird, but here's what people usually don't say. Money makes me weird. Money makes... Me, strange, it's, it's done weird things to us, accept it, and what Jesus would say is, your resources have created a false sense of security. You're lukewarm. And listen, like, this letter in Revelation 3, it's kind of freaky, because it's like, you know what, God, that's us. That's, that's me. I don't really need God for my food, like, if I'm really hungry, you know what I do? I go to Weiss. Like, I go get a free beverage at Sheets with my subscription service, right? I lean on, I lean on what I can do. When money gets tight, you know what I do? I start budgeting more, and I start reaching for this account or this account, or I can sell this thing, and I'll manage this. We get caught in comfort. We are lukewarm, and we love it. So this is what Jesus says. Hey, it's worse than you think it is, but I have a proposition for you, he would say. He says, I want you to make an exchange. And this would have been language that made sense to this kind of culture, a market culture. I want you to exchange something that you think has value. I want you to trade it for something that has so much more value. He says this in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and have white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Did you hear what he did? He spoke to their circumstances. Right? You, you think you're good at banking? Your gold's not worth anything. Trade that for something that actually is. You think you're fashionable and you've got wonderful black sheep? Right? Tra trade that for the white robes that I'm going to give you. You know what's fascinating about that? Is in the book of Revelation... There's a theme about the white, the white robes that Jesus gives the saints. In Revelation 19, it says that the saints were clothed in white, white robes given to them to wear. So it stands for the righteous acts of the saints that Jesus would say, I want you to exchange, I got this, and I want you to put on 
that I did this for you. I'm gonna give you the white clothes. It stands for your righteousness. And then he says, you know, the, the salve on your eyes. They had this medical center. You think you can heal your eyes, but you're actually blind. Take the salve in so that you can actually see. Make an exchange. Because what we need to understand is that what God offers us is so much more valuable than what we can earn on our own. And that's what made Jesus look at them and say, I wanna spit you out of my mouth because you don't even recognize how blind you are and what I have to offer you. So let me ask you a couple simple questions and then we'll wrap it up in prayer. Has your faith become lukewarm? Has it become easy? Has it become comfortable? Are you going through the motions? You know what? I hear Jesus say these words. I wish it wasn't in there. I really do. I, I, wish that, I wish that I could just say, you know, all Jesus ever did was affirm everyone everywhere. And he was all about belonging, and he never pointed a finger at anyone ever. These are his words. And it, and it rebukes me. It rebukes us. He says, I'll spit you out. Has your faith become lukewarm? Question number two, what do you depend on more than God? What do you depend on more than God? What idols, you know, think, think about this. Where are the areas where there's conflict or bitterness? Because usually that's tied to an idol in your life. I'm bitter they got that spot on the soccer team. Maybe your athletic profile is an idol for you. I, I, I'm, I'm, bi- I'm bitter that they got the job and I didn't. Maybe your career is an idol for you. I'm bitter that my sister has more money than we do. Maybe your money is an idol for you. What is the thing that tugs on your heart that you've built as a foundation? And then I would ask this question. This is what Jesus invites people to. Would you repent of that? Would you in our time of worship, in our time of prayer, just say, you know what, God? I don't understand all of it, but I think there's something there. And I'm gonna repent of that. And I wanna turn to you because I do not want to be blind and naked I want what you have to offer. Because here's what Jesus says to these believers. He says, those whom I love, in verse 19, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest. Not be fanatical, not you need to sell everything. No, like be zealous. Understand who Jesus is. A deep commitment of the heart. Be earnest about it and repent. Here I am, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, so many times I grew up hearing that verse, and it was always talked about in terms of like evangelistic crusades. Someone who, who's never heard about Jesus making a first-time faith decision to follow after him. And, and I believe that's an appropriate usage of this passage. But what's fascinating is Jesus is actually not talking to someone who doesn't have faith in Christ. He's actually talking to the church. He's talking to the church. These people who thought they had it all together, and Jesus is saying, look, I'm on the outside, and I'm knocking. Look at his posture. He's not pounding. He's not demanding. Listen, Jesus doesn't force himself on anyone, but he does present himself. This is who I am. I am the amen. I am the source of all creation. Take me seriously. Don't take me lightly. Don't, don't, it's not a mild approval situation. It's an all or nothing situation. Take it earnestly. 
Now, there's a, a, a famous painting, an old one, by a guy named William Hunt. It's Jesus knocking at the door. And it looks like this. And what art historians comment on is that the door handle is on the inside. He knocks. And he says, I'm not forcing my way in, but I'm presenting myself. The choice is up to you. And he is kind, even though he speaks a rebuke. He says, I love you. Even though you're lukewarm, I love you. Would you turn from that? Would you turn from that? Would you turn to me? I'm, I'm coming your way. So the question is, in our lives as Christians, because even when you think, I got over one of these idols, it used to be my career, now it's my family, there's always going to be another thing that's taken a piece of your heart and trying to pull it in. And there's always going to be the constant attitude of repentance and turning to him. And so the question is, will you have a hard heart and say, I got this, God. I don't need you. Look at what I can do. Look at, I, my car runs great. I've got all the money. I've got all that I need. I don't need you. I'm not going to repent. Or would you soften your heart and say, I recognize that I'm blind, and I recognize there are other idols at play here. Jesus, I don't want that. Root that out of me. Root that out of me. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Verse 21, this is how he closes out, and then we'll close out in prayer. He says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Jesus, this is hefty things. This is hefty stuff that I don't know that any of us can (laughs) say we would escape from unscathed. I'm grateful for the tenderness of Christ that he doesn't just tell us what we want to hear, but he tells us what we need to hear God, there are idols in my own heart, and I know there are idols in our hearts because we're Westerners and we're used to building our lives upon what we can acquire and what we can build. And so this word is just amazingly appropriate for where we are and who we are. God, it is my, it pricks my heart that there might be people in our church who are sprinkling Jesus on their lives and yet refused to come to him. And there, were, there was a whole batch of Pharisees who sought after having some religion in their life. And Jesus said, you diligently study the scriptures as though through them you might find eternal life, but you refuse to come to me that you might have it. So God, would there be repentance, an ongoing attitude of repentance? God, where we would renounce idols. I won't bow down to idols, the song we just sang. And would our hearts respond with surrender before you, God? So Holy Spirit, speak into this space as we create this time for each of us just to consider in the next few minutes how your spirit would speak to us and what we need to bring before you. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.